When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk covering every team in the NHL. New episodes every Monday. Download at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. This is the Leaf Sky Podcast. Here's your host, Jim Taddy. Hi, everybody, and thank you, Mike Ross. Welcome to Leafs Guy, episode number 20. Jim Taddy with you. Our guest today will be Gus Katsaros from the Keens Hockey at NBC Sports Edge. It is a spirited conversation, and I know that you thought we would get there based on the Leafs' stumbles of late. So plenty of things to deal with just under a month away from the NHL trade deadline. Before we get there, Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill, good, yes, guy. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It is that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your area, no worries. Everybody can still play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their their first deposit. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the call to action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the promo code THPN. Bet just $1 on any NBA team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's the promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for complete details. All right, on to the hockey story. And the Leafs are starting to skid. And really, the concern level is based on this. We've got a seven-week sample size going back to January 1st after the COVID break. And coming out of that COVID break, the wins were there. The attention to defensive detail was not, and now all of that is starting to catch up. A loss Saturday, 6-3 at home to St. Louis, left a mark. A loss in Montreal Monday night, 5-2, left a mark. And a Tuesday night in Columbus, they let one get away, 4-3. The Jackets won in overtime. So there is a level of concern, and we deal with all of that in our conversation with Gus Cutzeros from McKean's Hockey and NBC Sports Edge. <laughs> Okay, Gus, I mean, clearly the numbers are not good. And it, the reason I think there's a lot of concern here is we really have a seven-week sample size. If you go back to January 1st, uh, you're going to find that the record is pretty good, but the play is sloppy, and now it's starting to show up in the loss column. Uh, seven weeks is a pretty decent sample size. What's your level of concern? My concern is that, you know, regardless of what's kind of happened over the last little while, um, the same issues that seem to have been prevalent from the beginning of December are not getting any better. For instance, we saw the best of Jack Campbell leading into December, and he's just been a disaster ever since. Um, save the game against Pittsburgh, where he was really incredible. Um, he's letting in bad goals at bad times. Same thing with Peter Mrazek. Um, He's overshooting the net and, and allowing hole. Like, there's just yeah. enough commentary that we can apply to goaltending that it is still a concern. 
Um, at the same time, the defensive structure that the Toronto Maple Leafs have been pretty good with over the last couple of seasons is starting to break down. Um, that could be because of personnel and tactics. Um, clearly, Jake Muzzin hasn't been the Jake Muzzin that they need him to be. Justin Hall has been an absolute disaster this season. So that takes care of your second pairing. That's a big, big ask to fix, at least by this trade deadline, to ensure that they can maintain some kind of competitive edge uh, going into the playoffs. So that, to me, is concerning. Add to the fact that Muzzin got hurt against Montreal with a Chris Weidman uh, uh, altercation. And, you know, it just it, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And there's more problems that are emerging as a result. So I think the result from, from Montreal a couple of games ago, you can disregard that. Every team gets a blowout. Every team can have a really bad night. Um, and it's the bounce back that we expected. So last night we see in Columbus that they come out, they're much more structured um, and goaltending falters. And along the way, you can see that the Toronto Maple Leafs are being competitive. It's the second game of a back-to-back night. Um, all of the things are kind of clicking and then a bad goal and it deflates the team. That bad goal led to more defensive breakdowns. The defensive breakdowns led to another untimely goal. They go into overtime, and it's another bad goal that kind of ends the game. So to me, it's it's it starts in the crease, but they need to do something to fix the defensive structure that they were so good at over the last season and a half, and it's just starting to falter a lot more lately. Yeah, I mean, you opened about 15 doors there. So I, I, we will start with the goaltending because I think it's the easiest place to start and the easiest place to fix. I'm not pinning all of this on the goaltending, but as you say, Morazic in Montreal just three times went way over to, to cover the crease and left the far side open and got burned. on. And, and, you know, that's in between some miraculous saves. So, I mean, it was just an up-and-down night for him. Um, the Campbell situation is needed a stop against Columbus, no question about that. A lot of shots went through him. Uh, but it's the result also of the Leafs having this um, this habit of going deep, regardless of the score or the game situation, getting caught deep in the offensive zone and the other team, and you saw this against Montreal, right down the ice and scores. Now, you could easily say the goaltender was at fault, but so was everybody else. So it's funny because that kind of a strategy has actually been a benefit to Toronto. One right. of the things that I felt that Toronto was leading into, not this season, but the previous season, was too easy on the rush. So they would go in, get a chance. If they didn't capitalize, they would fall back. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Now I feel that they're using a lot more of the depth of the ice to create a little bit more time in the offensive zone, regardless of whether or not they're taking shots. Shots are the ultimate qualifier. That's what you want because that's what leads into goals. Um, but having those players that are playing a little more instinctively down deep puts the team in a situation where they're going to have to get back a little bit quicker and they're not covering that space. Now, having said that too, in the last, I'm just going to say six weeks, it right. seems like Toronto has changed a little bit of the way that they tend to break out. They are trying to stretch those forwards and trying to, uh, 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 I guess, create a little bit of space between the puck carrier on the defense and the forward that's pushing the alt, uh, the opposition defense as well back into their own zone. That gap is causing problems because anytime there's an interception or the team needs to transition back to not doing it quick enough and it puts more strain on the defense, it puts them into a more position of chaos. We've seen this on display in the first round last year. Montreal did a phenomenal job of making sure that when there was a breakdown, that transition led to chaos. Toronto couldn't keep up with the chaos. And we ultimately blame goaltending. And there are reasons why we do that. 
But if you have broken down defensive structure and you don't have a goaltender like Carey Price or, or one of those world enders that can, you know, stop pucks almost instinctively, then obviously the problems start to escalate and they get worse and worse and worse. So the addition of this, this new little wrinkle in their breakout, the fact that they do need to spend a little bit more time in the offensive zone because um, it creates other opportunities offensively. We don't need to get into all those little details. It's putting a strain on the defense. So just to put a little bit of a perspective on that, in, at five-on-five five Toronto this year, they've been about middle of the pack in scoring chances against per 60 minutes middle of the pack in expected goals per 60 minutes and middle of the pack in high danger chances per 60 minutes, which means that they're about average in, in, in their defensive structure. They used to be better, but the goals against are starting to really creep up. So middle of the pack in scoring chances against per 60, but they're seventh overall in allowing goals per 60. They might be middle of the pack in expected goals, but they're 11th overall in goals against per 60. And it's the same thing with the high dev, um, um, high danger chances, middle of the pack in the league, but they're they're allowing the sixth most goals per 60 from that high danger area. That to me gives the nutshell of what's the problem with Toronto. Even if their defensive game is average, they haven't been getting good enough results. And those results are starting to show on the scoreboard. They're starting to, starting to show on the standings. Add the factor of injuries and, and bumps and bruises and, and some players playing above their own capacity. It's yeah. a it's not a good recipe going into the trade deadline right now. No, it doesn't look good. So, uh, you know, one, one number here, Jack Campbell, last 12 starts, 3.78 goals against average, 882 save percentage. Those are not Campbell-like numbers. Um, and that's just, that's sort of the, the headline. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of this. So I want to go back to what you said about their, their different breakout. If you go back into November and early December when they were playing the way everybody loved and, and it was very effective, uh, who got the goals didn't matter. The, the stats didn't matter. It was defensive responsibility. Now, having said that, you have to evolve during the course of the season. And I like what you said about the breakout. So so they tried to tweak that and they've run into a roadblock here and have reverted back to who gets the goal. Uh, you know, give me the one play that that decides the game as opposed to doing everything shift after shift. They their their team game really has disintegrated, hasn't it? You know, we've kind of seen that um exemplified in their second line. That second line of Tavares Nealander oh. and whoever they put on that other side has just been horrible over the last four to six weeks. Um now you have to give them the ability to, to to kind of work themselves out of these problems, but the season is starting to really come down, um, and they don't have a proper internal um, solution to fixing that line. We could see the frustration on Tavares' face, and that's all fine and good. Um, we could see a little bit of the frustration in William Nylander. I don't really think that Nylander's had a very bad season, but there's a little stretch right now where I think that they're a little cold. Um, so. Going back to the uh, the strategy that they've been using, going into December, they kept coming back. There was a lot of support. There was always a lot of puck support, regardless of where it was, whatever zone. That support isn't as prevalent. That stretching of forwards, um, which I think was also necessary too. You can't be that predictable in your breakouts because when a team starts to focus during the stretch um, and especially during a playoff round, you can't be that predictable. You need to be able to kind of change it up somehow. They're just not having a lot of success implementing that stretch play. That stretch play is causing internal or sorry, more problems for them defensively than they're able to break out. And, and it's just kind of that, that skyrocketing um, sense of, of doom and gloom. 
Um, Elliot Friedman made a point on Saturday night to say that the Leafs are in a player like JT Miller. You know, if you have to bring in a player of that caliber and expend the assets in order to bring in a player of that character, it kind of goes to show that they understand that there is a deeper problem with some of the forward units that is translating into defensive issues that is you know, exacerbated by all the goaltending problems. And this is kind of where we are six weeks out of the, or four weeks now out of the trade deadline. Okay. So now you opened the big door mm-hmm. and now the arena is filling up. <laughs> so, I mean, let's, let's be honest here. I, I was going to do this slowly, but you just brought it to a head. Uh, there's two major areas of concern on this team. And, and let me go through them and, and you tell me if you agree. It's the second line and the second pairing on the blue line. First line will do what it does. It has it has moments where it can dominate. The third line we've never had a problem with. And the fourth line is the fourth line. It does okay. Uh, Riley Brody, good defensive pairing. Uh, Sandine Lilligren, uh, Mick Sturman in there, and now Labushkin in there. And I don't think you have any problems on the third pairing. It's the second pairing. Now, it's easy to pick on Muzzin, but he hasn't had the right partner. And, and clearly, you can see when he's out of the lineup, it's a big problem. And we've seen that before. They need to acquire the piece that makes him better because they've got a commitment of this year and two more years. So there has to be some term or some future on whoever they put beside him. I don't know how they do that. And let's go to the second line. Um, you know, this this line is a problem for me because it's not, uh, even when it's working well, it's still not the right complement for the top line. It has no physical component on it. And that's a problem for me. Uh, I, I like those three players. They're good players. I'm, it's not a bash of those three players. It's what you need on your team. So in the Montreal game, when they started getting pushed around, it was Spezza who had the answer. It should have been somebody in the top six who's out there with that kind of heavy ice time that's not fighting, but punishing back or doing things to push back the other team. That's a missing element. So let's just let's break it down. Right side defenseman in the second pairing left winger or right winger on the second line. That's the void. Don't know how you fill it, but that's the void. You know, that was where Zach Hyman really came into play because whenever there was a line struggling, he would be the player that you can inject onto that line to offer a little bit of that physicality, to offer a little bit of that counter skill. I shouldn't really use that word, but to counter the skilled elements and to bring in a little bit more grit, um, ultimately what they need to do is find a player that's not Alex Kerfoot, that's not Jason Spezza, that has a little bit more um, presence on the ice, regardless of whether um, they have a, a skilled component that can complement Tavares and Nylander. Yeah. Um, so that that's a hard ask. So do you, go out ex- do you go out and expend assets just to try to bring in a player that offers a little bit more grittiness? I'm not really sure that that's viable. Okay, so, so let me ask you this. Let me cut in here. Is JT Miller the answer? I'm not really sure that that's the answer either, but if there's, there's, well, he'll immediately make that line more competitive. He'll offer a little bit of that grit that, that they're probably looking for, but ultimately in order to score goals and in order for them to be successful, they need to have control of the puck, which they're not having as much control lately. They need to be much more um, prevalent in their scoring chances. They haven't been lately. So, Is that really because of the lack of the skill? Is it because of the lack of the grit? Or is there a team concept that's kind of screwing around with their production? And I kind of think it's more of a team concept that's screwing around. They can inject a player there too. So they go out and they get JT Miller, and he doesn't provide the solution that they're expecting. How do they now deal with that situation? So I think that there's, there's other components here that are above and beyond just the players on the second line and injecting a specific type of player to say, okay, well, this will make them much better. I'm not really sure that's the solution. 
Well, this is what I always say on the Leap broadcast when, when we're analyzing. We don't know what the game plan is. We don't know what the breakout is, what, what the plan is. The coaching staff knows that, and the players know that, and, 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 and players are, are playing the way they're, they're asked to play, uh, you know, not what they're capable of, because I think we all understand these are good hockey players. So, so the, ultimate, the ultimate question would be, if you go back to your breakout thing, you know, is that causing the problems is that where the issue is they're trying to tweak that and, e- and evolve to the next step because clearly you can't play 82 games the same way you're getting somebody's going to figure you out so so maybe they're they're trying to do something and and the horses are not getting them there that's partially the problem the second thing is um to be honest i think that it's a problem between matthews and marner this is where you would have a situation where you could put marner on another line and say you are now the de facto second line drive the offense from there to give a little bit of of a of a cushion to allow Tavares and Nylander, let's say to bring themselves back up to the game even if it was tactical and i think that you kind of you're probably right some of the transition into the new tactics are are they're they're stepping stones right you can't just automatically say we're going to do this in this situation and that in that situation um there's confusion that kind of sets in but they need to have some type of a buffer and the Leafs don't have that buffer. So if Matthews isn't scoring and the Leafs go where as far as Matthews scores and Marner isn't able to control the line on his own, you're dependent on that first line to score regardless of whether or not you're getting production from Nylander and Tavares in that second unit. So all the good stuff that let's say Jason Spezza brings and you can kind of move him up and down the lineup, you can't rely on a player like that either. So I think that a little bit has to do with tactics. Actually, I'd say a lot has to do with tactics. A little bit has to do with some of the players just naturally slumping um, to the degree that they're holding sticks, et cetera, et cetera. You can make those excuses as far as you want. But there are downstream effects to that slump that are causing defensive breakdowns. Those defensive breakdowns can't be – you can't tolerate that. That has to change. So if you have to maybe restrict some of the playing time specifically because of those defensive mistakes, um, maybe that's something that the coaching staff has to start looking at. I just want to bring up this one point about, you know, when you acquire somebody, uh, I always call it the, the Maple Leaf savior, the guy who is the missing piece. So let's go back to the all or nothing series. Uh, let's go back to Nick Foligno, one of his early games, the Leafs are in Montreal. He gets into some physical stuff. And, and as we see in, in the series, he comes back to the bench. And the coach leans into him and says, we don't do that here. And you go, okay, wait a minute now. This is the guy's game. He's got a career based on that. He's doing it. And he's told that they don't do that on the Leafs. That that could be a big problem, right? Well, uh, to your point, yes. Because the Leafs have played a certain way, a certain style. And you would have figured that the homework leading up to that acquisition would have given the I should be very careful how I phrase this. It should have been done in due diligence and say he can play this type of game because this is the, what our expectations okay, are. Okay, let me interrupt. Let's say let's say it's you or me. I'm hired to do something based on what I've done, and I go to do it, and somebody says we don't do it that way here, and I'm thinking to myself, then why did you hire me, right? That's that's kind of where I'm 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 leaning towards yep. this here too. You could see that there's a, a skill set. Nick Felino is a very good example of this too. You can kind of move him up and down the lineup as long as he's able to do Nick Felino things. Right. And if he can't right. do the Nick Felino things, then he needs to be able to adapt and quickly. So you don't have a lot of time from the trade deadline into the beginning of the playoffs to try to change your game to adapt to a, a, a strategical element of the team. Um, now professional players are also able to adapt. 
So they should be able to adapt. I just don't think that the time frame involved for Nick Foligno specifically add to the fact that he was injured. So it's hard to transition into something above and beyond. Um, that that kind of created a little bit of difficulty, but I just don't think that there's a savior coming into Toronto here. And if somebody does need to do their due diligence before they make that acquisition, because a first round pick, regardless of where it is, is still a first round pick and it's an expensive acquisition and you expect this player to come in and perform and be a part of the team for a, a, a hole that they've created. So if they were to go out and let's say bring in another Nick Felino, which I'm not really sure was really the right right way to go last year anyway. Um, and they say, you know, uh, Nick, you're, uh, we expect you to play this kind of a game, but we expect you to do it under our type of structure. They should have been doing that in due diligence prior to the acquisition and already hit the ground running, changing his skill set into the structure Toronto expected him to play. They didn't do that. And when they found out about that, it was a little too late. Add the injury to above uh, yeah. uh, to Felino as well, and, and it just made things that much worse. So going into the trade deadline now, let's just use that JT Miller. Is he really that player that we're expecting to be able to just seamlessly jump into the lineup um, and make that second line better and then have all that peripheral movement or throughout the rest of the roster that kind of starts to fill in all those slots. I think that that's still a bit of an up in the air notion, and I'm not really sure whether or not, I think that the only reason Toronto's kind of looking at that is he's one of those players that still has term. These are uncertain times and they just want to make sure that they're not expending a bunch of assets for something that's going to last like it did last year. I agree with you. I think that, you know, part of the problem is that they're going to have to, uh, fill two holes on that roster. And I don't know exactly how they do it. I know that on the blue line, they now have five guys vying for three positions. One is uh, number four with Muzzin and the other other two are, are five and six. So they got five guys there. The numbers are good, but they all favor the five, six competition and not the number four spot. So maybe you could take a couple of those assets and get a winger. And once you get the winger, maybe you could trade a winger out to get that defenseman. I, I look at that defenseman as somebody, uh, even though he may be on an expiring contract, you must be able to believe that he's going to be able to to have the same type of term that Muzzin has. Muzzin has this year and two more to go, then that defenseman has to sort of project that way because whoever it is, even if you don't win this year, you're looking at, you've got a, a, a two-year window after this, and then, then, you know, the wheels start to fall off here in terms of assets and, and retaining them. I mean, that that's... That's their window, really, isn't it? So uh, I'm going to counter that a little bit, Jim. Personally, sure. I think that the replacement for Jake Muzzin is going to be Timothy Lilligrant. He's not well, long, there yet. Long term, I'm I'm saying to make Muzzin work, you have this asset that you've you've committed to for two and a half more years. You should bring in somebody that helps him be who he is. Uh, you know, clearly for me, Sandin and Lilligrant are the three, four guys. At some point, whether it's next year, or the year after, they are the heir apparents to, to that that second tandem at some point, right? Well, I, I, the transition should have been a lot quicker than three or four years. I know that Muzzin still has term on his thing, but I think that at some point in time, they were going to have to make that switch over. And maybe it was supposed to be next season, perhaps with the conditions that, that they're dealing with now, that has to be upgraded and has to be um, expedited into this season. Maybe I'm kind of in the minority here, but I feel that both Sandine and Lilligren can probably take over that second line, uh, second pairing spot. I don't think that they'd be as effective, but I mean, at this point in time, Muzzin and Hall just aren't doing it, and they're less than effective. 
So putting somebody else in a position that might be able to buoy them through um, some of this uncertainty is probably a good temporary solution. I just don't think that they have the assets, the cap room, and the capability to bring in a player that you're trying to describe that can fit into that second pairing. And that, of course, is a problem. So going into the season, the question was, can Lilligren play in the NHL? If not, they're going to have to find a replacement. They didn't expect Muzzin to struggle this much. They didn't expect Hall to struggle this much. So now the question's kind of shifted. Can we move away from this pairing? and include Lilligren and Sandine and give them more opportunity, more responsibility, and put them in a position where, yeah, we're throwing you into the fire, but we know that you can actually perform. So if they have to make the decision, do they go out and expend assets to bring in a player, or do they just move those those two players up to the second line? I would say move those two to the second pairing and fill in a bottom roster, which would be cheaper on the market, perhaps even found a solution internally, um, or swap some player that they particularly aren't comfortable with, let's say up front, to find a depth defenseman. I just don't think that they don't have they don't have the assets, the cap room, or the availability to find a player that can seamlessly jump in and compliment a Jake Muzzin. Okay. I, I think, you know, I, I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to agree with me. I think you could look at it both ways and, and build a case. I'm going to flip this. I want to flip this around now because we always deal with what the Leafs have. If you are playing the Leafs, what are you going to try to exploit? You're going to try to exploit the lack of physical presence on the blue line. You're going to target Jake Muzzin because he's the only real physical presence, although Labouche could, could, could sort of emerge that way. But you're going to target him. And up front, you're going to, on those top two lines, you're going to target the right side because it's, it's all skill. And you're going to take a run at the left side, not necessarily bunting, but you're going to you're going to do something with Kerfoot. I, 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 there's no physical response there, or there's there's not enough for me to be confident about this team in the playoffs. I don't know how you fix that, but that it's just too much of the same guy. So I've noticed the the physicality argument is always prevalent. I just don't think that it's as as important as others may attribute it to. Well, I'm not I, talking about fighting. I'm talking about just taking the man out. Yeah, I agree. So I think in the playoffs, what we kind of saw was Toronto does step up the physicality. I don't think that they need to go and find another physical player or try to inject stuff like that. I think that players like, for instance, Austin Matthews is just underrated along the boards. He can use his size and his ability to kind of come out with the puck. You don't have to smash, smash and and crash and crash. You just impede the opposition enough to limit their capability. That is is what other teams are doing to Toronto. Right. Limiting their ability by impeding their momentum wherever it is on the ice. So what the Leafs do need to do is figure out a way to create more space faster and get out of those troublesome situations. I don't think it's an injection of physicality. I think it's a tactical change that they have yet to decipher. I, I totally agree with you. So let's let's break this down. Let's go on, on the top six forward unit. Matthews could do that. Bunting does it all the time. Does Marner do that? He doesn't, but the expectation is that he probably wouldn't, and you would expect the other two guys to kind of pick up the slack. That unfor- That is actually unfortunate because I think yeah. every player, from the definition of what I would define physicality, if the puck is close to you and you don't have it, you need to inject some form of right. impedance, whether that's physicality, um, getting in the way to, to – uh, the term is used, cut off hands. So instead of – 
you know, being really physical and smashing and, and forechecking, uh, sorry, body checking, a player like Marner just gets in the hands of the defender and they aren't able to do anything. They don't do that enough. So right. as a team, they don't do that enough. That's why I say that there needs to be a bit of a tactical change. And we also talked about support a little bit back there too. The lack of support, especially over the last six weeks, has been so prevalent that teams are focusing on that. And they're saying, that's fine. You could play with the puck all you want, but there are no other options around here. So if your little dipsy doodles don't work, or if your little creativity items don't work, there is no secondary option. We get the puck back, we transition out. And teams are keying in on that, and that I think is more worse than the lack of physicality that is available for Toronto. Okay, two more things I want to touch on before we say goodbye. Let's go to the second line and analyze it the way we did the first line. Tavares... Kerfoot and Nylander, do they do enough of what you're talking about in the physical battles along the boards and in puck pursuit and things like that? They can, they don't. Kerfoot, I think, is one of the reasons why they probably don't do that. Not that he's not that kind of a player. He's just not that kind of a player. I mean, Kerfoot is skilled. He's very smart when he has the puck, but he doesn't support as well as I think that their expectations are. I don't think that he's dynamic enough defensively to say, okay, I can be the defensive foil on this line. So there isn't that complementary third player. Tavares can be very physical beneath the dots. Nylander can be very physical and balanced beneath the dots. They don't do it as often because they usually have the puck. But that Kerfoot on the third side is probably not the answer that they're looking for. Yeah, and again, not throwing anybody under the bus. We're looking for certain types of, of, of players to complement what's already there. So, you know, whoever whoever we're saying doesn't do that particular job would go on to great success in another situation in the NHL. These are NHL players. So the, the final point I want to get to, and I, it goes back to what you're talking about, the breakout and their the zone coverage, two losses that would scare me would be the one in Calgary 5-2 and the one last Saturday against St. Louis because they were similar. They just stepped in the Leafs way in their own, in the Leafs zone. And they, the Leafs had trouble, big trouble. The way to impede a quick, fast team is to step in front of them to remove their speed. St. Louis, and that I think is a, a better example. Calgary yeah. did it because they're, that's their style. Right. St. Louis was methodical. Wherever the Toronto player was in relation to the puck, there was a blue there and another blue in support. If teams try to mimic that type of structure against Toronto, they're going to cause them fits and it's going to really affect their way to transition and to score more goals. And it's just going to put more pressure defensively, more pressure on the goaltenders. They need to figure out a way to bust out of that. Last minute of play in this podcast. Thank you, Mike Ross. Time now for a look at the split. Yes, guy, no guy. Yes, guy, no guy. Number one, concern level for the Leafs is going up. Oh, oh, yes, guy. For all the reasons Gus and I talked about. Oh, yes, guy. Major concern. They've got to tweak this and toot sweep. All right. Yes, guy, no guy. Number two, too much skill and finesse. Hmm, guy, that's an interesting premise, isn't it? And so when we talked with Gus, we're not talking about Tom Wilson coming in. We're talking about a guy who can get position and take the puck away or prevent movement down the boards, things like that, getting in the way. Uh, not seeing that that sort of uh, physical edge that way. And certainly when Montreal ran at the Leafs, the response physically had to come from Jason Spezza. It has to come from a top six player. So, so yes, guy, concerned about too much skill and finesse. 
Yes guy, no guy number three. More trades are on the way. Oh, an emphatic yes guy. As we detailed, need a winger on the second line. Nothing against Alex Kerfoot and need a defensive partner for Jake Muzzin. You know, Gus disagreed with me, but I contend that if Jake Muzzin is your guy for the next two years after this one, then you have to have somebody in there that makes him work. Otherwise, you go right to the transition of booming up Sandine Lilligren, and then you still have a physical problem on that blue line. And the final yes guy, no guy for me here on this particular Leafs guy episode, goaltending has to be fixed. I'm going to go with a no guy here, and I'll tell you why. You know, Jack Campbell's numbers are not good. Peter Morazic's numbers are not good, but the numbers of everybody in front of him aren't good either. It's easy to zero in on the goaltending, but let's go back to when we weren't concerned about the goaltending. Everybody else was doing their job, so I'm going to say it doesn't have to be fixed. That's an emphatic no guy. Hope you enjoyed Leaf Sky episode 20. Hope you return next week for Leaf Sky episode number 21.